This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my Master Your Anti-Diet Message online workshop, which is happening on December 14th and is open for enrollment for just a few more days if you're listening to this episode on the day that it drops. If you're a fellow health and wellness pro who's ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health and start advocating for non-diet approaches that truly help people's well-being, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com message. That's christyharrison.com message. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 177 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Linda Tucker, a health at every size health coach and fellow certified intuitive eating counselor. We discuss how dieting causes health problems, why intuitive eating is compatible with managing chronic illnesses, contrary to popular belief, how diet culture and the wellness diet twist the definition of self-care and health, why Linda combines the principles of intuitive eating with health at every size and body liberation in her work, and so much more. It's a really great conversation. I am so excited to share this with you in just a moment. But first, I want to answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Anne who writes... Hi, Christy. I've recently discovered your podcast and can tell you that my body acceptance journey has evolved drastically in such a short time, thanks in no small part to your podcast. It has truly allowed me to begin moving beyond my quote-unquote body limitations and just live my damn life. In so many ways, I've shifted my perception, but one item that I still grapple with is the idea that being in a smaller body is just physically easier. I've been about X pounds less than my current weight in the last two years, and it's difficult for me to reconcile that movement like riding public transit, playing with my daughter, etc. was simply easier at a smaller size. Movement came with more ease than it does now. I know that deprivation and dieting is not for me any longer, and that realization is so freeing, but a part of me still mourns for a smaller body simply because of this ease. How do you suggest coming to terms with this? Any advice to make peace with my body and its limitations today? So thanks, Anne, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is a great question. And first, I just want to empathize with you and say that mourning the change in your body is such a normal part of this process. And you're not alone in going through it. Many, many, many people have to experience this. So give yourself time and space to mourn and to grieve for the changes that have happened in your body because I know it is hard. And it really sucks that in this culture, we have to mourn the changing of our bodies because changes in body size honestly could be such a neutral thing if we didn't live in diet culture. But unfortunately, we do. And this culture teaches us from day one that larger bodies are, quote unquote, worse and smaller bodies are, quote unquote, better. So, you know, of course, you're up against a lot with those teachings that you've internalized for your whole life. And of course, you're going to have a lot of feelings about changing body sizes, just like we all do. Unfortunately, what could be a very neutral experience is very fraught within diet culture. 
And so that's really something to think about here as you mourn and work to make peace with your new body. I know that it feels like things were just easier at a smaller size and that you're struggling more now because you're larger. And there might be some truth to that. There might be some reality of your body just doesn't fit as easily in certain places. But part of the reason it's harder, part of the reason it's more of a struggle is also because of diet culture. And I know me being a smaller bodied person talking about this stuff, it might be easy to think, well, she doesn't get it. You know, she's never had to live in a larger body. But I've talked about this issue with a number of larger bodied people, quite a few of my clients and a number of podcast guests as well, including Sonia Renee Taylor in episode 113. And I would highly recommend checking out that episode because she has a lot of wisdom to share about this issue. So she points out in that episode that a lot of what we consider to be the inherent physical discomfort of living in a larger body is actually internalized weight stigma and the emotional discomfort of having to live in a larger body in this society. So it's not the inherent difficulty of the body size itself. It's what we put on body size, you know, what we believe about body size that causes at least part of the the physical discomfort that we're experiencing. As she puts it, you know, if your discomfort is about wanting to be able to move your body more without feeling tired, for example, like you mentioned about kind of chasing after your kids. So what if you were able to build up your stamina so that you could do that, you could achieve that, but you didn't lose a single pound in the process? Would you be okay with that? Because it is definitely possible to have a weight neutral practice that helps you get more stamina for whatever you want to do in life, you know, chasing after your kids or walking upstairs or wheeling yourself farther in your wheelchair or whatever it may be, right? So that it doesn't depend on your body size, whether or not you're able to do those things. But if you think about that, what would happen? How would you feel if you were to build up your stamina like that without losing any weight? If you wouldn't be okay with that, then that is a sign that there's some internalized weight stigma there for you to investigate and unpack. And Sonia gives a couple of other examples that are really helpful in that episode. So definitely go and check that out after you're done listening to this episode. It's episode 113, and it's available at christyharrison.com slash 113 or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And there's also some truth to the fact that this society is so fat phobic that it is not actually made for larger bodies, right? It's not made to accommodate people in public spaces the way it should be. So seats aren't big enough. Spaces are not engineered and designed for people in larger bodies to easily navigate them. And that is not your fault. That is the fault of this diet culture that we live in. This fat phobic society, because of diet culture, really doesn't accommodate and consider larger bodies in planning spaces. And that's a form of social injustice that needs to change. So that might be part of your process of mourning the loss of the smaller body that you used to have is getting angry at this culture that doesn't accommodate your body at the size that your body wants to be when it has given up dieting and really made peace with food. And of course, it can feel different to move around the world in a larger body, just as, you know, it can feel different to move around the world in a smaller body than you're used to. And there might be things that you have to get used to about that. So an example that I often use is that when you're a kid and you hit a growth spurt, say, for example, in early puberty or something like that, and you're suddenly a lot taller, you have to learn how to navigate the world in this new body so that you don't whack yourself on shelves that are now at eye level or whatever, right? And actually, even babies and toddlers have that issue. You know, suddenly a kid will be like eye level with the edge of the coffee table and the parents are like, oh, crap, I got to like put foam on the edge of the coffee table so our kid doesn't whack himself or, you know, maybe they do because they're still getting used to being in a taller body, right? 
And with that, you know, of course, there's some differences in navigating the world in a taller body, but we don't judge that. We don't put those judgments the same way we do with being in a larger body and the and the body changes and the changes in navigating the world that come along with that. And really all changes in body size should be as neutral as getting a growth spurt and getting taller, right? But when you think about the added judgment that comes from getting larger instead of just taller, it's clear that weight stigma is at play there too. And that maybe you've got some internalized weight stigma in this idea that you know, your body is now larger and you're having to learn to navigate the world in it. And, oh, my God, how did I let this happen or whatever, right? The the judgments that you feel about that are coming from diet culture and are coming from the weight stigma that it creates. So if you just had the discomfort of being taller and feeling like you didn't fit into spaces because of your height, that's one thing, right? That is maybe there is some physical discomfort with that, but you don't have the added layer, the added emotional pain of being part of a stigmatized identity the way you do when your body gets larger. And the stress of that can actually compound the discomfort and the aches and pains that you might feel in your body so that it's not just about your physical abilities anymore, but also about how you feel about your body. And Sonia Renee Taylor and I talked about this a bit in, in episode 113 as well. So I would encourage you to go give that episode a listen again. But I'd invite you to just really explore the ways in which internalized fat phobia is showing up in the way that you're relating to your body at this new size and the way that you're perceiving these limitations in movement that you have. And also explore whether some of the things might, you know, that you're judging as a problem with your body might actually be a problem problem with how society treats people in larger bodies rather than a problem with you as an individual. Because spoiler alert, it's not your fault that you can't fit comfortably into seats on public transit right now. It's the transit authority's fault for failing to accommodate bodies like yours, for failing to accommodate the whole spectrum of body size that is natural in our human environment. And you absolutely deserve to be accommodated just like everyone else does. So our society, again, because of the fat phobia that's baked into it from diet culture, really fails and lets people down, lets down people in larger bodies because it doesn't consider them when creating public spaces. And so that, again, is something to just try to reframe and try to understand that it's not your fault. It never was your fault. It never will be your fault. And I know it sucks. And I know there's a lot of discomfort in feeling like the world wasn't made for you. The world wasn't made with you in mind. But that's not your fault. That's not a problem with you. That's something to get angry at the world about rather than turning that anger on yourself. Because when you turn that anger on yourself, you're only keeping yourself oppressed and locked into this system of beliefs that is diet culture, the system of beliefs that demonizes larger bodies and elevates smaller bodies and demonizes some foods while elevating others and holds weight loss out as a means of attaining higher status and oppresses people that does not meet up with its oppressive ideal of what health and wellness, quote unquote, are supposed to look like. So instead of just furthering that pain that diet culture has already caused you, I would encourage you to externalize the anger Get pissed at our culture for doing this to people in larger bodies, for failing to accommodate people in larger bodies, and just explore and investigate 
if the ways that you're thinking of your body, the things that you're thinking of as limitations might actually just be differences that you're learning to navigate just the same way as a little kid who suddenly had a growth spurt is learning to navigate the world now at a taller height and you're learning to navigate the world now in a larger body and there's things that you can do to help your comfort in a larger body, like maybe building up your stamina or getting different clothes that are in a larger size to be more comfortable on your skin so that you're not fitting yourself into too tight clothes every day, things like that to really accommodate yourself and give yourself the care that you deserve and the compassion that you deserve that unfortunately our society might not be giving you in certain ways, but that you can definitely offer yourself. And you can also seek out a community of people who will give you that same compassion and that same accommodation and acceptance, which is the community that this podcast is a part of and that you know my colleagues and guests that I talk to on the show are a part of. And self-compassion, by the way, is really key in this process as well of making peace with your body at a new size. So I would recommend checking out an older episode I did a couple years ago on self-compassion. It's episode 62, which has a self-compassion meditation that you can try for when you're feeling down on your body and yourself. And just try to remember that you're not alone in this, that this is not a problem with you. This doesn't mean anything negative or any sort of judgment on you. This is an issue with our society in general, that it can't accommodate larger bodies and that it makes people in larger bodies feel bad for being larger. And that's not okay. And that's a form of oppression, system of oppression that we need to break down. So I hope that helps give you some fodder to talk yourself through this issue. And those of you listening, if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has a wealth of audio and written content walking you through the principles of intuitive eating in depth, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other course members already so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. When you join, you'll also get access to our private Facebook group, which is exclusively for course members, so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great people who are there to support you in relearning intuitive eating and breaking free from diet culture. And members also get lifetime access to the course, including any future updates, which is really cool because I'm actually getting ready to do a major update to the course in 2019. So now is a great time to join because you'll get all of the awesome new content automatically as soon as it's available. And you'll get it for a great deal because the price is going to go up as soon as the update goes live. So the prices you're seeing now are as low as they're ever going to be in the future. So if you're ready to break free from diet culture and relearn how to eat intuitively the way we all deserve to, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark, the easiest way to buy and sell fashion items. I love Poshmark and often recommend it to my clients because when you're healing from diet culture, one of the best things you can do for yourself is to buy comfortable clothes. Like I just was saying earlier, you know, buy clothes that fit the body you have now and actually feel good on your skin and get rid of old clothes that don't fit and that are just sitting in your closet triggering you or sitting on your body making you feel uncomfortable and self-conscious. On Poshmark, not only can you get great deals on pre-owned clothes from other people, but you can also sell your own clothes that you don't wear anymore. 
You can shop from loads of brands across the size and gender spectrum, including plus sizes, kids' clothes, and lots more. You won't believe the deals you'll find, and Poshmark also makes it easy to buy gifts for your loved ones this holiday season. When you see something you want, simply make the seller an offer so that you can get the items at a price that works for you. When you're ready to clean out your closet, listing on Poshmark is incredibly easy. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship it to the lucky buyer. This holiday season, instead of standing in line at stores, you can shop for everyone on your list, including yourself, because that is important, from the comfort of your own home. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Linda Tucker. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Mm, I love this question. I've been thinking a lot about how to answer it. And it was helpful for me to go back and try to put myself in my shoes as a child and feel the emotions that I had. And the first thing that came to my mind was joyfully ravenous. I loved food. Ever since I was little, little, all the memories I have, I just loved food. I loved celebrating with it. I loved trying new things. I loved going out to restaurants, especially the idea of bonding and celebrating and having people show me they care with love. That was a big love language for my mom, especially. If I was out running errands with her, we would stop and get a special treat. If I was homesick, she would you know, take me to McDonald's or if I had a doctor's appointment, like there was very much a loving, kind relationship, especially with my mother around food. I always seemed to be hungry. I really just had this ravenous appetite for food. I wouldn't even say I was a big eater. Like I wouldn't eat big, big meals or a lot at one time, but I just loved always having snacks and little things and little bits of this and bits of that. So there's a lot of really happy emotions when I think back to my childhood around food. But there's also a hearty dose of some anxiety and shame around that. And it's hard to suss out how much of that was intertwined with body shame and body image and how much of it was strictly shame and anxiety around food specifically. I come from a middle class suburban family. I'm one of five kids. I'm the fourth of five. So Food was never insecure, but there were definitely lean times and there definitely wasn't a lot of extra money. So I think I have a lot of really vivid memories of going over to friends' houses and they had all the fun treats and snacks and drinks and all the you know extras that I just don't think that we could afford. And so that just lit me up. I loved spending time with my friends, but I think that was also, I loved going to my friend's house after school that their parents weren't home and we could just kind of snack and watch t- Oprah. <laughs> I distinctly remember watching Oprah. But, you know, I also didn't have a mom that was a super like passionate cook. She got food on the table. Um, we definitely had sit down dinners and, you know, she provided a variety of foods, but they were not by any means like experimental or trendy or anything like that. Like it was a very much kind of like nuts and bolts relationship with food. And I always liked what she made, but I also liked going and exploring other foods at different people's houses if they had 
different things for dinner. I remember going to a friend's house once for dinner. She was an only child and they were more affluent and they had salmon for dinner. And I just thought this was incredibly fancy to have like a piece of salmon for dinner. So, you know, I have these siblings and my parents that will tell memories about, you know, Linda was always like we would go out to dinner as a family, which was pretty rare. And I would want to get, you know, a rack of ribs or something or like chicken fried steak. We lived in Texas. So, so they would just laugh at this like eight year old, just like downing a chicken fried steak where my sister wanted like grilled cheese sandwich. So there's a lot of really happy memories, a little bit of anxiety and shame, but I think that just came from always wanting more and not having full access to it. Yeah. Do you have any memories of like going to the grocery store and asking for things and having your mom say no or things like that? You know, I don't really remember going to the grocery store with my mom. I think she was smart enough to be like, I'm not taking five kids to the grocery store. So I don't have a lot of memories. Something that's funny that I talk about a lot with friends and family, and my family still talks about this, is we were allowed to get our own individual box of sugary cereal for our birthdays and for Christmas. And that was a big deal to us. And I think looking back, it I don't understand it really. I don't know if it was a money thing or if it was a health thing. This is another kind of interesting road to go down because my mom, who I adore, we were allowed to have non-sugared cereals every other day. And so we would have like kicks or Rice Krispies or cornflakes or something. But we also had total free access to a Tupperware of sugar that we could top our cereal with. So I don't really think it was a sugar thing. I think it was maybe just the money thing. Sugary cereals were really expensive, but my mom would have her own box of Frosted Flakes that were just for her. So she loved Frosted Flakes. It was her cereal. And we would have our like row of cereals that were for the kids and then the Frosted Flakes that were for her. And we just knew not to touch them. Like they were for my mom. So I don't know if it was her way of like, showing her kids that she loved them, that on her birth, their birthdays and Christmas, they could pick their own box. But I remember I would very much ration my cereal. I would very much like have one bowl every day and try to make it last as long as possible. I also would figure out what types of cereal would come in the biggest boxes. So I used to love cookie crisp, but that came in a very small box. So I would never pick cookie crisp because it wouldn't last as long. So I don't know if I was just a genius or if I had just a lot of anxiety and kind of scarcity mentality around that kind of stuff. So yeah, there wasn't a lot of like, no, you can't have this. And like I said, she would treat us to things when we would go out. But I also remember that like going to a convenience store and she said, you know, you can get a thing of candy. And I would try to pick the one that had the most. So I would pick, you know, a bag of Skittles because that would last me longer than a Snickers bar. Yeah, that's interesting. It does sound like there's some kind of scarcity mentality in there. Because if you knew you had free access to it whenever you wanted, if it was no big deal, it could be like, whatever, I'll have the Snickers because I feel like eating the Snickers, right? Yeah, no, it was definitely not like, what do I want the most? It was more what will last me the longest. I I don't have a lot of memories of this, but my siblings coming from a big family, it's fun because you have a lot of different eyes on you and they'll remember things I don't remember. But they would say, oh yeah, Linda, we would find candy or food that you would have hidden, or I remember you sneaking food, or I remember you would go into my Halloween candy and take some of it or, you know, so I don't really remember that, but I definitely had a reputation, I guess, of being a little sneak. 
That's so funny. Were any of the other siblings sneaks or was it just you? No, that's what also is so interesting. I was definitely the most sort of obsessed with food in a really good way, in a really positive, happy, loving way, much more than my siblings. I mean, I became a foodie you know, my late teens, I took some cooking classes. I really remember just loving food so much more than my other four siblings, which is sort of unique because you would think some of it would be genetics or, you know, the way we were raised. My mom is very much like that too. And I think that's why we did bond so much over food. What about the body piece? You mentioned that like body shame was maybe wrapped up in that too. Yes. So that's when I go back and try to think of this childhood stuff, it's hard for me to suss out what was food related and what was body image related. I don't remember feeling any guilt or shame or good, bad mentality around food as a young child ever. Health was not really something that was talked about in our house. Like I said, we had full access to sugar and for lunch every day, my mom would usually give us like a sandwich, a bag of chips and like an oatmeal cream pie. Like it was not this sort of healthy household. So food was very breezy, but body for me was always very, very tender. It was a tender spot. I was a bigger kid, again, compared to my four siblings. I just had a totally different body type. I was taller, earlier, stockier, really muscular, which is also funny because I never played sports which I think is tied into body shame for sure. I definitely felt like I stood out from my siblings and I caught on to that very young. And so I don't remember that tying into my food at that age, but I remember just feeling like I'm different. I'm bigger. I have the bigger appetite. I seem to be more obsessed with food. I just felt like my body was different than my other members of my family. And that social comparison really does kick in pretty early, I think, for kids. And some of my friends, too. I had some really, really great friends growing up in my neighborhood, and they just all seemed to be tiny. Like my one really close girlfriend, she was a gymnast, and so she was always prancing around in a leotard, and I just remember looking her. I mean, this is like eight, nine, you know, young, and I just remember thinking, I could never wear a leotard. And we lived in Texas as a kid, and so everybody had pools, everybody had boats. It was very much a swimsuit summer. And I I don't remember at a young age saying no to things because I had to be in a swimsuit, but I do remember feeling self-conscious. And as I got a little bit older, I very quickly started saying no to things that I had to be in a bathing suit for, for sure. Wow. That's so sad. I mean, and I think this speaks to like how rampant diet culture really is and these ridiculous ideals we have about body size because nobody should have to feel that kind of shame. But like you are also not objectively a larger bodied kid, right? Yeah, no, I, I think this is a really great point to make is that I, I have a lot of privilege, you know, from my skin color to my body size. I was conventionally attractive. I, you know, had a loving family. We were so financially secure. And yet the emotions and the fear and the shame and anxiety, it seems to surpass even various levels of privilege. Like it still permeated me at a very young age. And I think that is the that is the harm of diet culture is that I wasn't actively dieting at age nine or 10, but I knew very clearly that smaller was better. And that if I'm going to be attractive and appealing to boys and praised as a girl that I need to be as small and attractive as possible. 
And that just breaks my heart because I don't even know really where I was getting it from. I mean, I went through puberty very early. And I think that's part of the reason I was a bigger kid. My my body was just setting up for puberty. I mean, I got my period when I was 10. So I was fully developing in, you know, fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And none of my other friends were. And so then there's the weird thing of like the sexualization of my body at a young age, I think kind of got wrapped in there. And I mean, something else I think is important to bring up, which I think is slightly unique, but maybe not as unique as I think is my mom, again, had a great relationship with food and a great relationship with her body. I have no memory of my mom ever dieting, complaining about her weight, talking disparagingly about her body at all, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, such a rarity. Yeah, I tell her now, I'm like, you know, you're a unicorn mom. But my dad was a dieter. And so I, I often wonder how I absorbed that as a little kid. You know, he, there was slim fast in the house. He was always talking about wanting to lose weight. He was in, involved with some pharmaceutical companies and pharmacy companies and weight loss was definitely something. And he would have conversations with me every now and again about watching what I'm eating or just making sure, you know, I don't gain too much weight. And I think he was very well-intentioned, but it really stuck with me. And I knew that he wasn't talking to my siblings about this. Oh, God, what a icky feeling mm-hmm. to be sort of singled out like that. Yeah. So again, when I go back and think about my relationship with food growing up, I, it's v- because my body was such a problem in my eyes. And and honestly, I think in other people's eyes sometimes, whether it was, you know, just siblings teasing me. I had a brother and he would tease me sometimes. And I've talked to him about it and he's like, but you weren't even fat, you know? And I go, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) Even if you say it, even if you're joking, even if that's just kind of the culture of like boys will be boys and brothers make fun of their sisters, it, it really stuck with me. And I'm pretty, pretty adamant about it nowadays of like, we never tease people, even if we're joking about their body, because I just have such visceral memories of it from my childhood. Yeah, totally. And I think even if it's not quote unquote accurate, right, even if like you're not actually fat or in a larger body objectively, I think the fact that someone is using that as an insult also just instills this fear of fatness, you know, even if you don't believe it. Like I, my sister and I also growing up, I'm four years older than her and I actually didn't even remember this until I busted out some home videos recently with my husband when we were back visiting my parents. And we watched these this video that my sister and I made from when I was like 15 and she was 11, where I was doing like documentary style, like trying to, you know, document everything going on at this summer vacation we were on, but sort of being sarcastic and making jokes and stuff like that. And at one point she like shoots at me something like, you're so fat, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, why don't you get lipo? Or I don't know. It was just like this, mm-hmm. this back and forth that made me realize like, oh my God, you know, even though I grew up with thin privilege and so did she, and we were sort of insulated from a lot of body shame because of that. I think that mindset, that idea that like fatness is bad and that it's an insult and then you can like hurl that at someone to hurt their feelings was really problematic, really toxic, you know, and that that actually definitely set the stage, that kind of thinking, which we didn't invent, we like absorbed from the culture, but then fomented in our own talking to each other. And of course, probably other people too, you know, like that, that, 
that played a huge role, I think, in my later thinking about food and bodies that led down the path of disordered eating. Yeah, it's such an important point. You know, this idea of you don't have to be actively dieting to be negatively affected by diet culture. We're all negatively affected by diet culture. And you don't need to be in a larger body to be internalizing the fat phobic messages that are all around us. So even though I really have never been in what would be considered a larger body, I internalize that message of better not get any bigger or it's just even the idea of just it's always better to be smaller no matter what. I picked up on that so early on. And the the miracle of that, I'm still in awe of this, is that I didn't do anything about it. So I just carried around this body shame for probably 10, 12 years before I got exposed to doing something about it. So even though I was, you know, I went through puberty young and I gained the weight that everybody gains when they go through puberty. And then my childhood's kind of split in two. When we were 12, I moved. I went to a brand new school. Seventh grade is a brutal time to move. We moved from Texas to Virginia. The culture was totally different. We were really kind of outside of Washington, D.C. And I gained weight. I definitely used food as a coping mechanism for sure during that time. And I just wasn't as active anymore. You know, it was just kind of this perfect storm of my body definitely gained weight and kind of stayed at a little bit of a higher weight throughout my early teens. But I never restricted. No, I Nobody ever really suggested dieting. So even though my dad was doing like slim fast, I never thought I should do SlimFast. I I really was protected from the dieting. I hear so many stories of people that started Weight Watchers at, you know, 11, 12, 13. And I'm really grateful I was protected from that. But in my later teen years, I lost weight, not dramatically, not a ton, just thinned out a little bit, I think naturally. Became more active, was busier, started working, and, you know, just wasn't at home on Friday nights eating by myself kind of thing. And the the compliments that I got from it were so shocking to me and almost a little bit like a buzzing, like, oh, okay, everything that I have wanted, I'm now getting, now getting attention from boys like I wasn't getting before. And I remember a teacher at school made a comment to me like, oh, you're really looking good, which <gasps> just makes me like cringe oh, now. It's disgusting. It is. But you know, again, they thought they were just like cheering me on for doing whatever it is that I was doing. And that really had stuck with me for the rest of my kind of adult life of this. Oh, in order to get compliments, in order to get love and acceptance and praise, making my body smaller, what I had always suspected to be true had now manifested. And I really became kind of narrow focused on don't go back, don't gain the weight back, stay little no matter what. That's why compliments are so toxic. You know, it's like you don't know what someone has done to lose weight. But if you're complimenting the weight loss, I think inevitably it cements this idea that you have to retain it. You have to, you know, never let your body change or that smaller is better. And I think that's just the danger of anyone complimenting people's weight loss. It's its never going to be a positive thing. I think it always has that dark side to it. And that, you know, that dark side is really what leads so many people down that path. I've heard so many stories of people who similarly, like, 
lost weight unintentionally. And then suddenly it was like, oh, this is the praise. This is the acceptance. This is the love that I've been craving and and now is coming to me because of this smaller body. I guess I better never let my body change again. That's exactly it. And the unusual part is that I hadn't done anything intentionally to make it happen. So I was sort of at a loss for, okay, well, what do I do now to keep to keep this, I, you know, it was just my natural weight fluctuations that happened, um, that had sort of been up and down. Once I did learn about weight set point theory, I could look back at my life and say, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, going this up and down X amount of pounds was just my natural reaction to just hormones, activity levels, different phases of life. And so in my late teens, I discovered the magic of diet pills, and I'm using magic in quotations, that was really my first exposure to quote unquote dieting. So I never had any formal dieting. I was never restricting. I was never doing anything like that, counting calories as a teenager. I just discovered diet pills and said, oh, well, here's here's what I can do. I can just take these and it'll just take the edge off my appetite. Because like I said, I did have a pretty voracious appetite. And so I dabbled in the diet pill world for a few years as I went into my 20s. Um, and thankfully, they became illegal. Oh, yeah. um, thankfully, they were banned. I mean, you can still find, who knows what you can still find out there, but. Oh, yeah, lots of other diet pills, but the ones that you, yeah. were, you were doing, I think I know the ones you're talking about because they mm -hmm. were, it was a very high profile case that they were banned and, and found to cause heart defects and horrible things. Yes. And I experienced all of those side effects, all of them, horrible constipation and insomnia and headaches and everything. But it was worth it if I was getting told, you know, how good I looked. And so when I couldn't get those anymore, I panicked a little bit and I said, oh, no, the weight's going to come back on. And so that really in my early 20s was the first time I started really experimenting with restricting food which again is kind of unusual because I had been carrying around this body shame for so long. and I don't have this childhood memory of dieting or even teenage year memory of dieting. But that started in my 20s and I kind of dabbled in that and I just hated it. I was never good at it. I liked food too much. And so again, in my mid-20s, the weight came back on. And again, it's not, it's these just natural fluctuations. And then I got married and everything was great. I was doing a job I loved. And I just finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm really going to crack down. I'm really going to, you know, get serious about this. I'm going to, and that's when the sort of weird, like late 90s, early 2000s, mid 2000s trend of like these wellnessy diets, when diets were going out of fashion, but the, oh, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle change kind of came into my scene. And, you know, I've been thinking about this, how I never wanted to identify as a dieter. So when I took the diet pills, it was very secretive. Nobody knew I was doing it. I mean, I was not talking about it at all. And when I started down this sort of, I'm going to start cutting out carbs or not eating sugar or, you know, eating high protein, I was keeping it a secret. I never talked about the fact that I was dieting, almost because if I admitted I was dieting, I felt like somehow I'd be bringing attention to my body. And that's the last thing I ever wanted was to someone to look at my body. So I did this very covert dieting restriction, you know, 
buying all the sugar-free whatevers you could ever buy. And I did lose a little bit of weight. And again, the praise started coming on. You know, I can think back to people I love and admire and I'm so close with, and I can remember comments they made to me about losing weight and how good I looked and, oh, keep up what you're doing. And it was just, it was kind of a tumultuous time. And, you know, I would yo-yo back and forth between things and, and I started to have a lot of symptoms, a lot of digestive issues, a lot of headache symptoms, a lot of fatigue. And I started, never connected the dots that it was because I was manipulating my food too much or... Isn't that funny? I know. And I went to doctor after doctor after doctor. Nobody ever asked me, how much alcohol are you drinking? How much caffeine are you drinking? You know, what does your food look like? It was very much, you know, we'll get you this test and this test and this medication and this medication. And that probably went on for four four or five years. And I got got introduced to an acupuncturist and she was, well, let me back up a little bit. Intermixed with there, they put me on a medication for my migraines, that one of the side effects was weight loss. So I was already in this kind of wellness culture restriction phase that I wasn't calling a diet, but was a diet. And I got put on this medication and it made me lose a pretty big chunk of weight. I got down to the lowest weight I think I'd ever been in my adult life. And I think I was equating it with what I was doing, even though I knew it was probably a side effect of the medication. And so that just confused me more because I was like, oh, I'm cutting out this and this and this and this, and that must be what's working. And the praise I got during that period of time was tremendous. I was a hairstylist at the time. And so every 45 minutes, someone was coming in and sitting in my chair and telling me how great I looked and what's your secret. And I was like, oh, I'm you know, doing this and I'm doing this. Meanwhile, I know I'm on this medication. That's probably what's doing it, but I did not want to admit that. That's so interesting, right? Like, yeah. we want to give the food and the diets and the restriction, the credit, the so-called wellness interventions that are just diets by another name. Like, we want to give that the credit rather than admitting that it's a fluke or that it's something, you know, a side effect of a medication that's probably not good for your body, really, for that to be happening. No, the side effects were terrible. And for a year and a half, probably two years, I dabbled back and forth of should I go off? First of all, it wasn't working. It really was not reducing my migraines. Thankfully, I'm so thankful because I think if it had worked, I would have been more tempted to stay on it. But it really wasn't working and the side effects were terrible. But I knew in my heart that if I went off of it, the weight would come back on. And so I stayed on this really harmful, potentially harmful, ineffective medication for longer than I should have because I wanted the praise. I wanted the, you know, love and acceptance and I wanted to feel like I fit in. I was also working, like I said, as a hairstylist. So I was knee deep in the beauty industry and that's a whole other ball game. But finally, finally, my husband was such a great support during this whole thing. He really, really, I mean, my hair was coming out in clumps and I mean, it was terrible. And also migraines are oftentimes associated with eating disorders and restriction, right? So if you are not eating enough already and then this migraine medication is making you have a lower appetite and eat even less, I can see why that would exacerbate the migraines you're already having and then have all these other side effects that show like, yeah, your body's really malnourished, you know, when your hair is falling out. That means you're malnourished. 
Of course, exactly it, right? I think I have no doubt that the, the reason I was getting a lot of these headaches is because I wasn't eating enough and I was over-caffeinating and over-drinking and doing all these things. But I was like, oh, it's got to be corn or something, you know, like (laughs) it was just ridiculous. And so finally, finally, I was like, okay, I need to get off of this. I need to start looking at this from a different angle. And that's when I got introduced to this acupuncturist who was amazing. And I loved her. And she really opened up my eyes to true holistic care. So your social life, your spiritual health, your, you know, physical health, your mental health, your emotional health. And I saw her for about two years and I weaned off the medication and she was immensely helpful in a lot of ways. But I think I felt even more like empowered or diligent or vigilant about figuring it out, you know, eating the perfect way and moving the perfect way and meditating in the perfect way and taking all the supplements in a perfect way. And I really, the pendulum swung from diet culture restriction, you know, that kind of mentality to I'm just going to eat super clean and I'm going to live this holistic, clean lifestyle and I'm going to heal myself naturally. And that's where I stayed for a long time. I stayed in that world for a long time. Yeah. What was that like? How did that unfold for you? I don't think anything happens in a vacuum. So all of this was happening at a time where I was transitioning careers. So I decided I wanted to get out of the beauty industry. I wanted to get out of the hairdressing world. And so, of course, looking back, I was obsessed with food. And so I said, I know what I'll do. I'll become a chef. I'll work in the culinary world, because then I can be around food all the time and, you know, kind of fuel my obsession. Oh, I feel you on that, having yeah, been a food writer and, and fallen into that world when I was obsessed with food because I wasn't eating enough. It's like so many of us, right? We get sucked into yeah. these careers by just how diet culture and deprivation make us hyper fixate on food. Yeah, I think I heard a statistic recently that like 60% of registered dietitians have a history with eating disorder, disordered eating, which makes sense, right? Like, why don't I just pick a career? I actually remember saying that to somebody. I'm already obsessed with food and reading about it all the time. I might as well get paid for it. Oh, wow. So I, in the midst of that, I was, so I was transitioning my career and then my husband got an opportunity to be transferred to California. So I had already been going to school for about a year and a half at that point. And we moved to California where I didn't know anybody where we were going to be living at the beach. So there comes up this swimsuit anxiety again, you know, all the time. And where this sort of wellness culture, clean eating, green smoothie and quinoa world, not there's anything wrong with green smoothies and quinoa, but that was very much the world I got plopped into. And it was fuel on the fire for sure. So I started getting more training in holistic nutrition and sort of, I kind of left the traditional culinary arts world and moved more into the clean eating culinary arts world. And I really thought that that's what I was going to do. I I went to school to get my coaching certificate and I thought I was going to like help rid the world of sugar and processed foods and all that because look how well it's worked for me. Meanwhile, I'm still having the headaches. I'm sleeping like crap now. My stomach is getting worse and worse and worse, but I just keep thinking I need to cut out more. It can't possibly be what I'm doing. I'm just not doing enough. 
that is such the the rabbit hole I think that people fall down with this wellness diet and I did it too you know I was like having all these symptoms you know very similar to you had all kinds of symptoms based on my restriction and overexercise that I was doing and refused to connect it, you know, was very kind of deep in denial that it could be anything I was doing with food other than what am I intolerant to? What am I allergic to? And for me, it was back in like the early 2000s, you know, 2003, 2004, when gluten-free wasn't trendy yet, but it was coming, it was emerging. It was like on these deep message boards in the alternative health world. And I fell into that and started cutting out gluten, experimented with cutting out other things. Meanwhile, I was having all these health effects from the restriction and now the added layer of restriction from the other things I was cutting out. And like, no doctor recognized it. You know, no one in my life sat me down and was like, you're, you're messing up your, the reason your hormones are so messed up, the reason you're having like dry skin and fatigue and foggy brain and all of these things that you're blaming on gluten is because of this disordered way that you're eating. You know, nobody caught it. And it was so easy to just stay in that in that mindset. And I think when like for anyone with chronic illness, you know, and I ended up having Hashimoto's thyroiditis that got diagnosed as well as a couple other hormonal conditions that got diagnosed around that time it was just more fodder for like, okay, so how do I heal my thyroid naturally? How do I heal my hormones? How do I heal my IBS, which I also had like irritable bowel syndrome was fully present. And I think it's just this vicious cycle that the wellness diet shows up and is like, oh yeah, we've got solutions for that too. Just cut out these additional foods or just don't eat anything cooked or whatever it is, right? These ridiculous ideas about what quote unquote health and wellness is supposed to be that take you farther and farther away from actual health and wellness. And we can really like dupe ourselves into thinking that we're feeling better or that like it's working. Meanwhile, all the evidence to the contrary is like the symptoms are still there and getting worse. And yet we think it's not because of this stuff that I'm doing to try to fix the symptoms. It's not because the supposed cure that I'm engaging in is actually iatrogenic, is actually having negative effects. But like, oh, I'm so toxic, you know, I'm riddled with toxins and I have to like get these things out of my my diet because that's what's causing my symptoms. Yeah, it's in- incredibly problematic. And I really you know, and I know you agree with this too, I hold space and really honor the the individuals that are going through this because I know what it's like to be desperate. I, I remember walking into that acupuncturist office and saying, if you tell me to stand on my head for 45 minutes a day, I'll do that. Like, I will do anything. So when people are desperate and they are in real pain, they are more susceptible to trying things that may not feel good to them, but they're like, I'll do it anyway. And we have this culture of like no pain, no gain, or it's going to get worse before it gets better. Or I very much bought into that kind of almost in a way, I think I had a lot of deep, deep seated guilt and shame around, oh, I've done this to myself. You know, all my years of eating junk food or, you know, drinking or all these things, like I've done this to myself and I now have to pay for it. And so if I have to pay for it by cutting out all these foods and over-exercising and spending gobs of money on supplements and appointments, then I will do it because I'm worth it, you know, and health is of the utmost importance and I must be healthy above no else. And it was just, I really go back and I have compassion for 
Linda back then because I know she was desperate and I know she was, she believed she was doing what was right, but it just, it didn't help. And, and thankfully I have those lessons now that I can, when I do have a bad day, if I do have a headache or a bad stomach ache, I can see those like, well, maybe you should do, or maybe it's because, and I just have to be like, put my hand on my heart and be like, it's okay. You know, you're going to get headaches sometimes. You're going to get stomach aches sometimes. You don't need to do X, Y, and Z in order to cure yourself of never having this anymore. It's it's a very fine line to walk between self-care and self-control. Mm-hmm. So well said. And I think, I mean, as I'm always saying, a peaceful relationship with food and your body is about self-care, not self-control. But I think the wellness diet, the way that it sort of twists this idea of self-care can make it seem like all these restrictions are in the name of self-care. And it it really lulls us into believing that. And I, I have so much compassion for anyone who's in that place as well, as well as my former self who was there, because we're incredibly vulnerable to those messages when we're suffering, right? When we're in pain, of course, we want something that's going to make us feel better. Of course, we want help. And it's just this manipulative, toxic, predatory face of diet culture that really shows up right when we're at our most vulnerable and says like, I have the solution for you, you know, here's what you do. And also makes us feel like it's our fault. Like you said, you know, you felt like it was your fault that you had, you had done it to yourself from years of eating quote unquote junk food and sugar and stuff. Like, I think that is the drumbeat of diet culture in this day and age and the wellness diet in this modern guise of diet culture that is the wellness diet. Like, I think that is very much the message underlying it. And so like any form of diet culture, it really absolves itself of responsibility. It puts it all on us as the individuals to say like, oh, it's your fault that you're doing this and you're the one who needs to solve it by restricting and atoning for your your sins basically mm-hmm. by doing this diet and here I'll give you the Hail Marys that you're supposed to say in order to like absolve yourself of sin you know like I mean very much it parallels religion in a lot of ways as I've talked about on the podcast before that's not on us you know that's not on us the people who've been pulled into that kind of thinking that is really on diet culture and this industry this wellness industry quote-unquote wellness that is preying on our insecurities and giving us all kinds of unscientific, unfounded, incredibly harmful supposed cures that are actually causing the problems to be worse. And sadly, we're so desperate for help that we continue to believe it. But I think once we can wake up to that and realize how much diet culture is manipulating us and trying to sell us something that is actually harmful, then we finally have some power and some agency back to do real self-care instead of self-control masquerading as self-care. Yes, 100%. I think going back to that time too, I remember thinking to myself, So not only was I getting the praise because my body was getting smaller, but because also, you know, I was posting all these pictures on social media and the feedback I was getting there was also very intoxicating and very congratulatory and in no way. And, you know, my husband and I have been together since I was almost 21. So he's known me my whole adult life and he never really seemed, he would say things like, oh, what are we eating this week? Like, what are we not eating this week? You know, like he recognized that I was 
not a quote unquote normal eater, but he never really expressed concern. You know, my friends and family, I think because I was also living in California where I was very isolated. Now looking back, I understand too how anxiety and loneliness and grief and all these things, they create oftentimes a susceptibility to, as Brene Brown would say, like perfectionism, like performing, right? So when we're knee deep in shame or loneliness or feeling disconnected, we are much more vulnerable to this people pleasing, perfecting, performing tendencies. And I can look back on my myself at that time and say, oh, yes, I was very much trying to form a new identity. I was going to be the healthy girl, you know, and I was going to be the clean eating coach and I was going to do all this. And it was very intoxicating. But because nobody was raising concern, I didn't feel concerned, even though in my gut I knew something didn't feel right. I just was like, well, maybe this is what I have to do now. And so I've had to grapple with that a lot where, you know, I'm really passionate about how we reward and compliment and praise not only weight loss, but what could be disordered behaviors or over-exercising or sort of this people's perfectionist perfectionistic tendencies. I think we have to be really careful that we're not adding fuel to people's fires when they're they're actually just struggling with loneliness or identity or grief or all those painful things that can come up in life. They're just part of life. Yeah, that's such a great point. And it makes me think of the people who are wellness bloggers or Instagrammers who are like sharing pictures of their food in addition to pictures of their body, holding those up to be praised, also sharing pictures of their food and holding that up to be praised. And I think when we praise people for these ways of eating that are so-called wellness or so-called clean eating or whatever, it just adds fuel to that fire too of that perfectionistic way of engaging with food suddenly becomes, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting praise for this. This is good. This is what I should be doing. And so I need to do more of this. And that is almost always to the detriment of the person. Yes. Yes. I think the social media aspect of this is huge nowadays because we get this instant hit of likes and congratulatories and good for you. And, and everybody wants that, you know, like we want that we're humans. We need that. We, we want to feel loved and accepted and, and like we belong, but it's really hard to get that in real life. And it's really easy to get it in social on social media. And I think in our real lives, we tend to get that by performing. So by, you know, I'm on this new cleanse or I'm doing training for a triathlon or I'm, you know, doing whatever people, we like to reward tangible things rather than just like, Hey, I just survived today. Or, you know, I really just took the weekend and relaxed. Like people aren't like, good for you, you know? And I'm trying to normalize that a little bit more in my own personal life with my friends and family of just like not rewarding this endless drive for production or I was productive and I did this and this and this. Yeah, that is such a good point. I think the most likes I've ever gotten on social media posts have been things where I was just like, hey, I did this thing or I got married or whatever, you know, or it's like something that is considered a value in our society and people can just easily click like and move on. They don't have to read an article. They don't have to do anything. They can just be like, good for you, you know? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's so symptomatic of where we are as a society where like these acts of really performance of some kind get rewarded and the 
day-to-day kind of harder stuff of like slogging through life or taking some time for self-care where you're not even posting about it on social media because you're off social media as a form of self-care that doesn't get the praise that's a much quieter more internal thing yes i think that's a big big part of this i as as my work progressed so i I was doing the kind of traditional wellness coaching and I I knew I didn't want to sell weight loss, I think because that was such a raw spot for me, but I didn't really know what else to do because everyone that was coming to me, like, yes, they wanted to have more energy and they wanted to cook more and they wanted to do all these non-weight related things. But at the end of the day, they really did also want to lose weight. So I, I felt very cornered, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help these people if the only way that they can quantify their success is by weight loss. And so I was kind of at, at this crisis point and I really, I wasn't feeling great about the work I was doing. I wasn't feeling great about my own relationship with food and my own relationship with body image. Cause that's the thing about working with clients or being a coach or is it's a mirror. They hold a mirror up to your own life real quick. And so you start to feel like a big old fraud if you're telling them one thing and you're living a different way in your own life. And I think of it as such a blessing that I had that realization really early on. And I'll never forget, I was listening to a podcast. It's like when podcasts were like first coming out and I was on a long walk with my dog and I listened to this podcast and it was our mutual friend, Isabel Fox and Duke. And she was the guest. And I had just never heard anyone saying those kinds of things before. I never heard someone talking about restriction being the problem and not part of the solution and that your weight doesn't have to be a metric of your success. And she talked about intuitive eating and health at every size. And I was like, what is this? And I just went home and I emailed her and I was like, I need to know more. And so we started working together and I got kind of a crash course and everything. And it was like a spiritual experience. Like as soon as I read about these things and, and learned about them, I was like, yes, this is true. Like there was no doubt. There was no like, yeah, but what about this? And I don't know. And sounds good here. But it was like the heavens opened and the choirs were singing and they were like, this is it. And so I need to learn this and I need to start practicing it in my own life. And I really came face to face with my own lingering body shame, my own lingering fat phobia, all the thing that I had been trying to kind of push down and hide behind clean eating and wellness culture, I had to come face to face with it. And it was really hard, but it was the best thing I ever did. I think that's so interesting too, what you say about trying to push down fat phobia and body shame underneath clean eating and wellness. Like, I think that is so symptomatic of what's going on with the wellness diet and wellness culture in general is like it's there under the surface like you said with your clients you know they come in with all these supposed health and wellness goals that are yeah important to them but what they really want underneath it all is to lose weight and that's because weight loss is held up as such a supreme value in our society so yeah I think it's really peeling back the layers that you have to do under, you know, to get underneath, like, what is my obsession about wellness really about? And oftentimes has to do with this idea of shrinking your body in order to be okay, in order to be acceptable, to be loved, like all the deeper things that we think weight loss means. Mm -hmm. I just never had been introduced to an idea of how you could measure success if it didn't have to also do with the way that your body looked. Like, 
I remember I did the whole 30 and I was actually such a star student in quotes being very sarcastic that I did it for days. And I felt, first of all, spoiler alert, I felt worse afterwards because I had been eating just like cruciferous raw vegetables and fiber. Like my, it was the worst thing I could have done for my digestive system, truly. And actually I'm really grateful for it because it was, it was the straw that broke the camel's back of like, I, this isn't making me feel better. This is making me feel worse. It was the first time I was introduced to the idea of like, there is such a thing as too much fiber (laughs) and it can make you feel terrible. And so what if I just ate white bread instead of wheat bread? And, and that, was a whole other journey. But this idea of, you know, in the whole 30, they talk a lot about non-scale victories. And I get that, I get what they're trying to market, right? It's this very, it's what Weight Watchers recently did. Like, we're not going to talk about weight anymore. It's about wellness and it's about feeling good. But I don't know a single person that participates in either of these things that isn't actually trying to lose weight. Yes. Like we can say it's not about that, but even on Weight Watchers' website, on one page, you'll say it's not about the weight loss. And then on the other page, you'll say, we're the, still the number one weight loss company in the world. And if you want to lose weight, we'll, we'll help you do that. Totally. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yes. Yes. And I've just always had a really good radar for hypocrisy and like, hmm, I don't know. It smells fishy. And so, yeah, I just really came to terms with, I'm not going to sell weight loss. I'm not going, I'm going to teach intuitive eating. And I knew I had to go through the process myself, but it happened very quickly for me. I'm really grateful that the process of healing my relationship with food really came pretty easily to me. And I, I often wonder if it's because I hadn't been a classical dieter my whole life. You know, I hadn't, I'd always really loved food. Yes, I tried to restrict it. But when I ate, I ate with gusto and like joy and and pleasure. So I never equated that guilty pleasure thing that people have with food. I'm really lucky that I, so I think the intuitive eating healing came really fast for me. But the body shame stuff was the part that was a way bigger hurdle than I anticipated. Mm. How did that show up for you? And what did that look like? Were you already coaching on intuitive eating stuff while still working through that or? Yes. Yes. And I really, I love the intuitive eating principles and I still use them, but intuitive eating is not going to cure your negative body image. You know, like we have to do that work alongside of it. And I think it was very common and still probably is very common in nutrition worlds and coaching worlds and therapeutic worlds, eating disorder recovery worlds to be like, let's let's fix the food. And then once the food is fixed, then we'll talk about body stuff. And while that can be appropriate and true for some people, I didn't, my body shame came way before my food restrictions came. And so it's really at the center of what we're all struggling with. We're really the, the controlling our food is really a way to control how we feel about our body. And so I really had that aha moment and was like, I need to get some training. I need to do the work. I need to feel confident and comfortable helping people with their body healing journey. Or else, as you've talked about, it's like, it's very easy to turn the intuitive eating principles into the intuitive eating diet. Mm Mm-hmm. So easy. And in fact, the authors of the book in earlier editions sort of made it the intuitive eating diet. That's why I always say like, get the third edition, like definitely don't, don't mess with those 
cheap discounted earlier editions even if they're <laughs> you know available on Amazon yeah. still like it's not cool and even even the third edition you know I think there's some ways in which the principles of intuitive eating can easily get filtered through the diet mentality to say like if I just do this perfectly I'll lose weight Mm-hmm. Or like some of the stories in the book where it's like, oh, this person found that they were full on just a few bites of this food that once they've been, you know, at one point they were binging on and now they're they're satisfied with less. I think the way that that gets interpreted through the diet mentality, too, is like, oh, cool. So I'm going to learn how to stop eating so much. I'm going to learn how to eat less and therefore lose weight. It's got to be sort of handled with such a deft touch to like spot those outcroppings of the diet mentality and those little manifestations of diet culture that are still hanging on and to say like actually no you know like or why why is that important to you and let's get to the bottom of that mm-hmm. yes i mean the health at every size messages the body liberation messages i mean those are it's really the trifecta right it's it's yes we're talking about healing your relationship with food and we're talking about healing your relationship with your body and we're talking about how you are one person swimming in a sea of diet culture so let's build some resiliency to help you navigate the rest of your life well you know the world is not changing around you unfortunately it's getting better but it's it's not gonna, there's probably going to be very few people in your real life that have done this work. So let's talk about how hard it's going to be. And let's talk about resources and tools. And, and that when I started adding in those other components, that's when I felt really fulfilled, really strong, really confident in the work that I was doing, not only with myself, but with other people, because it felt like I was treating it truly holistically, like the whole issue, not just well, let's teach you about the intuitive eating principles and then hopefully the body image stuff will will work itself out because I think that's rare to have happen. I totally agree. And I think, you know, like you said, it's like the body image stuff really drives the food stuff in a lot of ways. Like I think at the root of most people in diet culture's desire to change their eating is a desire to change their body. It's like eat this way so that you will get thin or eat this way so that you will look like this picture of health that's being held up to you as the model or eat this way so that you'll never have a flare up of your chronic illness again or eat this way so you'll never have a symptom of the stomach ache or a headache or whatever again. And so Yeah, I think addressing the sort of beliefs, the unrealistic beliefs and the diet culture beliefs about bodies and how they're like supposed to look and function, quote unquote, is really essential for being able to liberate yourself from the food rules. Because I I can't really think of anyone that I've worked with who's able to just address food in in a vacuum. There's always the body image piece that gets sort of brought into the picture. Well, and I love that you circled back to the chronic illness because that was really, that was the solidifying. Like I believed, like I said, I had this kind of like aha moment where I intellectually immediately understood and believed the principles of the non-diet approach and health at every size. But it takes a little while to move from intellectual understanding and belief to like lived experience belief. And my process to from going from intellectual to true, you know, belief in my bones really came from the part of my struggle with the chronic illness. Like, yes, I had had weight issues and struggles with the way I looked, my appearance. But I think the part that's been so beautiful for me and to help other people with is this work helps you with 
aging. It helps you with chronic illness. It helps you with grief. It helps you with, you know, all the parts of our body that don't have anything to do with the way they look, but how you said the way they function, that's really where I found it to be incredibly healing because I can have a bad body image day and do that work, but there's not as many resources on like, how do I manage a chronic illness? How do I manage you know, infertility is something that I've struggled with. And this work has been hugely beneficial to be like, my body isn't broken. I'm not less than, you know, I can still be happy and joyful, even if what I want in a perfect world isn't coming true. And it's very deeply spiritual work, but it's so rewarding because it really starts to impact all the parts of your life. Like body liberation is not just about freeing yourself from negative body image issues. It's really about freeing yourself from this sort of like internalized, I'm not good enough because blank, or I'm not perfect, or I'm not free from pain and suffering. Because that's that's really the, the hard, hard work is like, there's going to be pain and suffering. How do we deal with it? Totally. That is such the hard work. And it's, I think in our culture, the way it is now, I mean, we've sort of always had this ableism in our culture, right? That people with chronic health conditions feel excluded from society. And, and there's a lot of messaging around needing to be in perfect health or tip top health or whatever to be worthy. But I think it's more evident than ever before now at this moment in history where we have the wellness diet and all of these messages around like you can you can hack your health and be you know you never have to have pain again you can get off all your medications for chronic illness you can heal yourself with food and that is really damaging messaging I think for the vast vast majority of people I mean there's definitely a few people I know like maybe one person I can think of in my life who has chronic illnesses that she went to wellness diet practitioners and was told all these foods to cut out and did it and hasn't had any like negative effects on her psychological health. But that's one person out of like hundreds or thousands of people that I know and have worked with and have interacted with through the podcast and stuff, you know, tens of thousands really that like I can't think of anyone else who has gone down that road of healing chronic illness through food and cutting things out and restrictions that hasn't had some negative effects on at least their mental health and their emotional and, and social health and ability to connect with other people over food, if not also their physical health and holistic physical health in terms of like, yes, maybe they're eating this certain way to try to address a symptom, but then five other symptoms pop up because of that. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the chronic illness piece is really tricky in this day and age. Well, and I always say if I can make it work, I kind of put intuitive eating and health at every size and non-diet and all the things, self-compassion, all the tools in my toolbox. If I can make it work, with my chronic illnesses and, you know, the things I struggle with and just life, you know, then to me, that was kind of the litmus test of, you know, because people come to me and they say, yeah, I want to try, you know, giving up restriction or I want to try being more intuitive or I want to try, but I have X, Y, and Z. And to me, it's just an opportunity to like dig a little deeper and talk about how do you feel about that? And what are your emotions surrounding that? And what are your fears? And what shame are you carrying around? What, what makes you think that 
you're not going to have a worthy, healthy, happy life, even if you struggle with this, that, and the other thing. And they just have never, most of them have never had anyone really try to hear them. I have a quote that's above my desk that says, people want to be heard, not fixed. It's like, yes, they want relief from some of their pain and they want to have a healthier relationship with food in their body. But so many people, they've just never had anyone ask them about these things. Yeah. And I think providing a forum to open up about that stuff and explore it is such a huge thing because we really don't have that in our society. We really don't have a place where people can come and discuss their fears and their hopes and their pain without being given or sold a solution without being sold mm -hmm. like oh just do this this and this and you'll be better because everyone wants to I mean I think it's human nature in some ways too to jump to wanting to fix especially when we're in the health professions like it's certainly taken a lot of unlearning for me to stop offering solutions the way that I learned in school to be a dietitian and instead started helping people peel back the layers and come to their own awareness and their own decisions about what they want to do with their food, their bodies, their life, you know, all of it. So yeah, I think it's really tough in this culture to escape that. But when you can, as a provider, give that to people, I think it's so healing and so needed in the world. Yeah, it was a gift that had been given to me and you would have never met someone that hadn't tried. And again, because I had an immense amount of privilege, it afforded me the luxury of being able to try everything under the sun. And it really wasn't until I had a couple people work with me one-on-one -on -one and say, tell me about how this feels. Tell me what comes up. Tell me about the pain and struggles. That's when I really started to release some of this white knuckle, like gripping this energy of like, I'm broken and I need to be fixed versus wow, this is, you know, this is deeper than that. This is something that goes a lot deeper. And, and because it was a gift I was given, I'm really really passionate about helping other people get that same gift. Yeah, it's so needed. I'm curious, like how you relate to your chronic illness now and what's changed for you and in, in your relationship with that? It's a great question. So, I mean, I still struggle with headaches. I mean, I'm pretty open about it, but I now know that it's a lot just to do with my physiology and my biology. And, you know, my mom had them and my sister had them. And so I'm, I've learned through the years to identify potential triggers, like sleeping was a huge thing that I never took very seriously in the past. Routine, eating really regularly, my headaches are very, very correlated to like big blood sugar swings. So going too long without eating really can trigger me. And even if I eat, the horse is out of the gate, like it, it's very hard to stop it once it starts. So I just take a lot better, I don't want to say care of myself, but I think I just am more mindful. That's probably the word. I'm more mindful about how my body's sensitivities manifest. And I've had to learn to say no to things and to, you know, bring a snack and to advocate for myself if I'm with a group of people and they're not really hungry for lunch, but I need to eat. So, you know, I'm going to advocate for myself or create a routine that gives me a, a nice bedtime every day. So, the headaches are still there. I found a really great doctor that's willing to work with me and we've adjusted some of my medications and I'm taking them as needed, but not taking something every day that wasn't really working. 
the food part has been huge for the headaches, unexpectedly huge. I really thought it was the individual foods I was eating. And now I've learned that for me and my body, it's really just eating. Like, you know, literally something's better than nothing. Eating enough. Yeah, eating enough and eating regularly enough, which again, the intuitive eating model is so helpful with that, of really taking this fear away from it has to be a certain thing or, you know, the digestive stuff, that's where I've seen the biggest total turnaround. I mean, I still am a little prone to some sensitivity in my digestive system, but I think feeding myself regularly and not having anxiety when I go to sit down to eat. I mean, for years I would go to eat something and even though it was supposedly the right thing, I would still have this like, oh, it's going to make me sick. Kind of the placebo, nocebo effect a little bit. And so letting go and really leaning into unconditional permission, no judgment, that probably, especially in the past like two years, has been dramatically different. Some of my friends are like, wow, you can eat X, Y, and Z. You used to never be able to eat that. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's just my body's kind of, I think, trusting me more that food is coming, food is coming regularly. You're going to be eating a wide variety of things. And it's just, I've kind of felt this like lingering chronic tension that I was carrying around that is so often manifested in our digestive system. It's just released a lot of that pain. I identify with that so much. I also had IBS that was terrible for years in my disordered eating days. And now it's like, rarely do I have any issues. And the biggest triggers for me are stress and not eating regularly enough, like you said, and disruptions in routine like travel. I think by the time this episode comes out, the a few episodes ago, we'll have done a big episode on digestive health and disordered eating. So I shared in that one, like some of my issues with travel and stuff and how it can kind of mess with my system. But again, that's nothing to do with the foods that I'm eating. It's just about, am I getting disrupted so that I'm not eating regularly enough or not sleeping enough? And, you know, sleep is a huge one for me too. So like if I can try to keep those things in a nice routine and a balance where I feel good and I'm taking care of myself in those ways, I don't have any digestive symptoms, you know, and it, when, you know, just life happens, right? Sometimes you get more stressed out. Sometimes you're working hard to meet a deadline or you have to travel and get up at four in the morning to go catch a flight. And so that's going to throw things off, but like it is what it is. And I think that for me, like a huge part of the health at every size model, especially in the way that it's evolved in recent years to be really clear on anti-healthism, that this is not a stance that says health is a moral virtue or that you have to be healthy in order to have worth, but that actually all people, regardless of health status, have value and worth and deserve respect. I think that message that health is not a moral virtue has really been helpful for me too in saying like, yeah, you know, I have some chronic health conditions that I manage and that occasionally will flare up if my life just gets a little bit chaotic, but that's okay. Like that's not my fault. That's not something that I'm personally responsible for correcting through the quote unquote right foods or cutting things out of my life or anything like that. It's something that maybe I can have some influence over and try to organize my life in a way that like feels good to me so that I'm not constantly disrupted. But also like if it happens, it happens. And if I'm 
constipated or gassy or have a stomach ache one day, it's not the end of the world. You know, I can, I can like rest if I need to, or just go through my day and not feel a hundred percent. And that's okay too. And I think the wellness diet especially makes it out to be that if you're having any sort of symptoms, you're not living optimally, you're not achieving your full potential in life, and you really should be completely symptom-free all the time. And that's just bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's human to have occasional symptoms and aches and pains and things like that. And we don't have to be hemmed in by this unrealistic idea that everything's going to be 100% perfect all the time and that the only reason it's not is because you're eating gluten or whatever. Right. I love that. I think it's so, I think that's so, that's been exactly my experience too. Like I'm still going to have symptoms. Travel's a big trigger for me too. And I don't latch on to them and attach myself to them and then start this rumination of like, oh no, what did I eat? And now what I can't eat. And, you know, I just go, oh yeah, I'm a travel day. So my stomach's probably going to be a little, meh. let me have some like tea and like still eat lunch and still mm -hmm. eat all the things. And I'm just not so mentally wrapped up around it that I feel like I'm a problem that needs to be solved. Like I'm just a human that has a human body. And, and really part of it too, I think is like, I think you and I are similar in this way. Like I'm pretty empathic and I'm sensitive and kind of compassionate. And so that makes me a great person in a lot of ways. And it also makes my body kind of sensitive to things. And I'm not going to trade those things. And so I just have, I've let go of the identity of like, I'm Linda with the IBS and headaches. Like I'm just Linda that has a body and doesn't mean that it's, it's not a trick to make them go away because they still happen, but I just don't give them as much energy and time. And the mental space is so nice to just be freed from constantly thinking about how I need to fix myself and cure myself and treat myself in a way to like get better all the time. I know. Ugh, it's so it's it takes away so much life. And it's ironic because what you're really chasing, what we're all really chasing when we're trying to like manage pain or chronic illness is to have a better life, to have more freedom, to have more time available for other things and not to have to be compromised or incapacitated by the pain. But we're actually adding through no fault of our own, but through what we've been told by this culture that tells us our health has to be perfect. We're just adding and layering on that additional pain that could be that we could take away that pain and that time and that energy that we're putting into all that worry and use it for actually living. Yeah, I was interviewed for something else and they were asking me like, what's my favorite part of doing this work? And I say for me in my own life and then watching clients is I love watching people's lives get bigger. Because all this time and money and energy and angst and worry that they've spent, either whether it's trying to control their weight or trying to control an illness or aging, you know, just like, oh, I'm not as spry as I used to be. It's like, yeah, that, you know, that's a lot of times what happens with us. And once they sort of let go of trying to control that, which is usually a fruitless endeavor, they're like, oh, I now realize I like this and they have new hobbies and they're spending time with people and they're getting more joy out of their life, even if their body didn't change and even if their chronic health conditions didn't go away. They've seen an improvement in health. And that's to me what I really love about the health at every size message is like we all have access to increased joy and health and happiness and well-being, even if our body size doesn't change and our you know, labs don't change and our pain necessarily doesn't change. Absolutely. I think that's so well said and such a benefit of this movement is that 
we can open up space for other things in our lives that we don't have to be so singularly fixated on health at all costs and physical health specifically. It's much more of a holistic, truly holistic version of health, not in the way that the wellness diet makes holistic health out to be, which is just cut out these foods. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I'm really happy to be a part of it. I'm happy. I'm, you know, I'm happy. I just found it for myself. And the fact that I get to share it with other people is icing on the cake. I always say, you know, money and time I spend on training or education. First and foremost, it's for me. You know, I'm not doing anything that doesn't benefit me and my own life because if my cup is full, it will overflow and my friends and family and my clients will benefit from it. So I'm really, I'm my own client first. Mm, I love that. I feel the same way too. (laughs) Tell us where people could find you and, and work with you and learn more about your work. Sure. So they can find me. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I would say that's where I'm the most active. So my handle is Linda Tucker Coaching on Instagram. I have a website that's under the same name. You can contact me there. You can sign up for emails and read some blog posts. And I'm on Facebook. I'm not super active on Facebook, but you're welcome to follow me there. You will see me pop up sometimes in some of the intuitive eating groups or health at every size groups. I like to chime in every once in a while and see what's going on on there. Yeah, same. I'm not huge into Facebook, but I I pop into the groups once in a while. So, But we'll put links to all that in the show notes for this episode so people can find you and, and learn more about your work. And I just think you're doing such amazing work in the world. And I'm so glad to know you. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Linda Tucker for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on the path to freedom from diet culture, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. You can go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 177. That's christyharrison.com slash 177. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by Poshmark. This holiday season, instead of standing in line for hours, head to Poshmark, the easiest way to buy and sell fashion items. Find all your favorite brands for up to 70% off, all from the comfort of your own home. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H. Also, just a reminder that my Master Your Anti-Diet Message online workshop is happening on December 14th and is open for enrollment for only a few more days. If you're a fellow health and wellness pro who's ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health and start advocating for anti-diet approaches that truly help your clients' well-being, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com message. That's christyharrison.com message. Then if you want to help spread the anti-diet message to people in your life, you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, which helps other listeners discover us. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the places you can subscribe and tell your friends and family to go there too. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Witasek, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show for you every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared.
Tell me, B. Have you ever went over your friend?